we continue to worship, I'm going to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Galatians, specifically Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. If you're new to Dawson, we are concluding a summer series entitled Cultivated in His Character as we've walked through the various attributes and characteristics of God revealed to us in what we know to be the fruit of the Spirit, nine Nine attributes that we see uh, that are called to be reflected as we, as followers of Jesus, abide deeply with him. What does a life look like that abides deeply with Jesus? Well, it looks like what we read in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We come now to the final characteristic of a life that is cultivated in the character of God. It is the characteristic of self-control. If you've heard one sermon this entire series that I've preached, you've gotten the template, the model for each of these sermons before this Sunday. Each of these Sundays, I wanted to remind you that love is perfectly displayed in God our Father. That joy is perfectly displayed in God our Father. I wanted you to see that the Prince of Peace is Jesus himself. That these characteristics of a life that is cultivated in the character of God are not first and foremost things that we grit our teeth and say to ourselves, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to do better and be better. No, we are men and women who are dependent upon the Spirit of God in us as we abide deeply with Him for the, the Spirit to work and these attributes of Him be reflected in us. This is important. Now, it, it is important, especially when we come now to the final characteristic of what we know is the fruit of the Spirit because it, it breaks our template. It breaks the model. We, we don't talk about God's self-control. Why? Because God is perfectly joyful. We, we don't talk about God having to exert self-control because God's perfectly love. We, we don't talk about God having to, to choose not to be patient. He is perfectly patient. He is perfectly good. He is perfectly faithful. Now, while God doesn't have to exert self-control, because we read in 1 John chapter 5, we read, or chapter 1, verse 5, this is the message we've heard from you and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. This is true of God. It's not true of you. It's not true of me. So in contrast to a God who does not have to exert self-control, we, through the Spirit of God, must exert self-control because there is darkness in us. While God is completely consistent, we are inconsistent. We must exert self-control. While God knows no sin, we know sin, and we know it closely and personally. So we need the Spirit of God to dwell in us and to abide deeply with Him so that we can have the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control. Now, we need self-control to not walk in the ways that are unacceptable to the Lord. And Paul doesn't leave this to our imagination here. What, he, he contrasts the fruit of the Spirit to the works of the flesh. 
So if you ask yourself, verse 24, well, what is Paul talking about here? Crucifying the flesh, the flesh with its passions and desires. If you ask yourself the question, what is Paul talking about here that we must crucify? Well, he gives us the answer in the preceding passages right here in, the, in, in chapter 5 of Galatians 5. He, he talks about our need for self-control. He tells us in verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. These things that we as followers of Jesus must crucify, what we must put to death, what we need self-control to not choose to to be overcome with and to, to live in. These are the works of the flesh. They're evident. Paul is saying, you don't have to imagine this. You know this. You see this. You see it in your heart. You see it around you. This is 2,000 years ago. How much more true is this today? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Dot, dot, dot. Notice the contrast. There's this perfect symmetry of threes, Three, 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 the work of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, perfectly nine here. Here we have the works of the flesh, which is messy. It's incomplete. Paul is saying, I'm not trying to be exhaustive here. You know what they are. You could fill in the blanks here. What Paul says at the end of this, in verse 21 of Galatians 5, I warn you as I warned you before, like that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if you're a person, as I know you are, a person of the word of God, there's been some time in your journey as a Christian where you're reading Galatians chapter 5 and you come right here to verse 21 and you say, Whoa! But those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the mirror of Scripture shines upon you and you see these types of characteristics evident in your life and you say, is Paul saying that if I've ever experienced these or am doing these, that I forfeit my salvation or I am not a Christian? And the answer to that is an answer that I think we really must take seriously. It's an important question. First, Paul is writing to Christians. He is writing to Christians, the recipients of this letter, the church at Galatia, men and women who are followers of him. So what Paul is saying right here to Christians is something that that we need to hear. If we're consumed with these characteristics and we feel no guilt, no remorse, no sense of conviction of the Holy Spirit, we have no desire to seek repentance. And if the fruit of our life is spoiled fruit, the works of the flesh, it might be an indication that the seed of salvation has never been planted in your heart. Be known by our fruit. And if our life is a life that is consistently, notice that word, consistently overcome and consumed with this, and there's no sense of a desire to run from this sin and to pursue, it might be an indication that we have never trusted Jesus as our Savior. Now, if we're followers of Jesus, as the original recipients of this letter were, the flesh still pulls. 
So Paul isn't saying that this will never be evident in a follower of Jesus' life. Well, of course they're evident because Paul says, hey, guess what? You need to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. So an ongoing work of every Christian's life is to turn from sin, to crucify the flesh, to ask for forgiveness, and to pursue holiness. So will any person in this sanctuary come to a place, this side of heaven, where they say, oh, I'm finished. I'm perfectly loving now. I'm perfectly joyful. I'm perfectly self-controlled. And the answer is no, no, and no. There'll never be a time, this side of heaven, that you say, the, the work of the Spirit is completely done with me. While you're here on earth, the flesh still pulls on you. The siren song of sin, it still calls to you to, to pull away from the way of God to the way of the world. And there's still a temptation for you to not be transformed by the renewing of your mind, to be conformed into the patterns of this world. And we, through the power of the Spirit, we must fight that temptation. We must fight that pull. We must put to death the works of the flesh and walk in the way of the Spirit. Each and every Christian, we're called to do that. Will you perfectly get to the place where you don't? The answer is no. Can you make progress this side of heaven? The answer is yes. Will you be perfect? Nope. Can you make progress through the work of the Spirit? Yes, yes, and yes. This is our need for self-control. The work of the Spirit in us to crucify the flesh to run from sin and to pursue holiness. This is our need for self-control. I want you to see our display of self-control in this passage here. How does, how does this show up in your life? How does it show up in my life? Notice the listing and the prioritization that Paul gives to certain sins here. Notice again, when you're reading Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, he says, the work of the flesh, they're evident. These things that we need to put to death, that we need to kill, that we need to run from, pursue holiness, they're evident. There's sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Notice that the, the, the three leadoff hitters, Paul's making a, a lineup of the works of the flesh. He's got the leadoff hitter, the second hitter, and the third hitter, all in the same grouping here of sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. He's made some other lineup cards in the Pauline epistles. It's helpful to, to compare and contrast. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, we have a similar passage where he says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you as it is proper among the saints. Kill it. Run from it. It's not to be a part of, of the work of, of God and the work of the saints here. He has another list. Here's another line of Colossians chapter 3 verse 5. Put to death. Same emphasis here. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Works of the flesh, what's earthly? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Three different lineup cards, similar one, two, three hitters right here that give us an indication of just how rampant it was. In Paul's day, understand sexual immorality was rampant in Paul's day. In the Greco-Roman world, adultery, Sexual impropriety, fornication, uh, we could go down a list. It, it was rampant, but what is different in Paul's day and in our day is the widespread accessibility 
Yes, there was pornography 2,000 years ago, but it wasn't in everybody's back pocket with the click of a phone right before us. Notice just how applicable and just how relevant God's Word is for the cultural streams that are pulling at every individual that sits in these pews, every family in these pews, every business, every organization. All you have to do is turn on the television and we see the way that sexual immorality gets a foothold and it is disastrous. Let, let, let's, not, let's not call it any other thing, disastrous for individuals, disastrous for families, breaks levels of trust in, in politics or levels of trust in the church or levels of the church in, in uh, trust in business or in families. We see this as disastrous. When we say that, we need to be reminded, though, when we talk about sexual immorality and impurity, that ultimately this is Satan, because it's so important, it is Satan polluting and perverting what is God's good gift. Never forget this. We will be tempted as Christians to forget that sexuality is God's gift given to humanity for flourishing. It's God's idea. Genesis chapter 1, first mandate, first command is be fruitful and multiply. Will everybody be married? The answer is no. Will many people be called to marriage? The answer is yes. Human flourishing occurs through sexuality. Adam and Eve, man and woman, till death do us part. It is God's good gift. Satan wants us as Christians to fall into the lie this is evil and dirty. It's not. It's pure and it's good. But like anything, when it is polluted and perverted, it can be disastrous. The Mississippi River starts in Minnesota all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. 23, 2400 miles. This powerful river, the longest river in the United States. We know this, that it's beautiful at places, whole cities that have been built up around it with breathtaking uh, just views that you can see of the river when the sun is setting and the sun is rising. You can see commerce and transportation. You can see the development of our nation around this river. But when that river overflows its banks, it is disastrous for homes livelihoods, people, when it floods. God has given us sexuality and he's given it to us in the proper banks, but when it overflows into areas, into areas that God never designed for it to be, it is disastrous. And I see this, and you see this. A couple weeks ago, I had the honor, absolute privilege, to offer the invocation for the Homewood Police Department they have a swearing-in ceremony, an annual awards ceremony for those officers. And here I was with, with over a hundred of, of men and women who are officers in the Homewood community and their spouses and their children. And just realized just how difficult this past year was for these men and women who are called to serve and protect and protect and, and they were offering awards for faithful service this last year. And I listened to Chief Ross talk about what, what necessitated the awards that were given out. And do you know, it just shocked me. I, I, didn't, I wasn't prepared for what I heard, but, but the majority of the awards were given because of the heroic efforts of men and women, police officers, who were intercepting human trafficking rings. Lives that are stolen. Purity that is robbed. Wrecks havoc 
upon cultures and civilizations. And here we are with these heroic men and women. And we could, we could extrapolate that and we could multiply that to other Birmingham uh, over the mountain communities and, and faithful work of, of officers that are intersecting heinous evil. And I was grateful. I, I was grateful for these men and women. And lives, lives and futures, lives and futures that were pulled out of the darkest darkness. Those decisions when we get to those places of human trafficking rings, when we get to the uh, abuse and the sexual harassment, when we get to pornography, and we get to all of these things that end up being front-page news, that blows up communities, blows up families, blows up businesses, blows up churches. Do not be deceived. Those were not rash decisions that were made in the moment and someone slipped up and decided to do that. They were little incremental decisions of sensuality and impurity and immorality that they got a, they got a little bit more comfortable with and a little bit more comfortable with and a little bit more comfortable with. And men and women are making decisions that they never in their imagination thought that they would do. But hear me, it is Satan wanting to whisper to you, this is okay. And Paul, through the work of the Holy Spirit, is saying no. Our culture has completely desensitized this completely desensitized it. And what is occurring is we're reaping what our culture is sowing, and there's disastrous, disastrous consequences. So we have to be men and women here who model through the power of the Holy Spirit what purity looks like. We have to be men and women on our knees praying, praying for the purity of marriages and the purity of eyes and purity of teenagers. We must have guardrails. My question to you is, are you serious in fighting what is so rampant in our culture? Do you, do you have accountability and guardrails? Are, are, you, are, are you burdened by this? Or you become so desensitized to it that, that what God calls us to repent of is casual entertainment for you? It should not be. It should not be. And it should break our hearts here as our culture has normalized and celebrated what he calls us to repent of and put to death. And it is a, is a warning shot that Paul gives out to get our attention. Are we fighting for, praying for our purity? Are we vigilant and fighting in our personal lives to put to death any type of immorality? You know this is possible. You know this is possible. I, I remember in, in the book of Genesis where we open up God's word and we see Joseph, he's sold into slavery. He receives this promotion to Potiphar's palace and the Bible tells us he's a handsome man and Potiphar's wife takes notice of him. And if you remember the passage, but he refused in verse 8 of chapter 39. He said to his master's wife, Behold, because of my master has no concern about anything in the house, he's put everything that he has in my charge he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against your husband? No. Sin against you? No. Sin against God. Joseph knew that God was with him. Joseph resists this temptation because his vision of God was greater than the pleasure of sin in that moment. Joseph's vision of holiness 
was greater than the, the fleeting moment of immorality that was before him. He could have in that moment said nobody would have known. Nobody would notice, but he knew that God would. And the vision of holiness, the vision of purity had so, so entranced him that he was able to resist the, the song of sin that was calling to him and seducing him in that moment. This is rampant in our culture, the sexuality and immorality. We all know this, but some of you are here and you honestly say, I agree, David, but it, it, it's, not, it's not the temptation that is so easily trapping me. And I hear you. I hear you. And that's why Paul continues in this list. He says, maybe it's not sensuality. Maybe it's not impurity. Yes, that's rampant in our culture. It was rampant in Paul's culture. What about envy and jealousy? What about envy and jealousy? Verses 20 and 21 talk about us putting to death the works of the flesh. And do you find yourself uh, consistently discontent with your quote-unquote lot in life? Do you, do you find yourself, even last night, scrolling through Instagram, scrolling through Facebook, and, and you see the good gifts that other people were enjoying, it, be it a house or a vacation, and your, your consistent reaction to that is, why them and not me? Do, do you find yourself often frustrated with others? You seem to have what you wish you had. What Paul says in this moment is, hey, confess that. Repent of that. It's not of the Lord, and you will not flourish going down that road of envy and jealousy. Maybe it's not envy and jealousy. Paul keeps on. He, he talks about our, our anger. He talks about putting to death anger and strife and enmity and rivalries. I doubt we have a whole lot of Hatfield and McCoy type of generational rivalries, but that can't occur. I know it does occur. Oftentimes, though, it's more, it's more insidious. It's the frustration of the heart, the anger of the heart that, that lashes out to those that are closest to us. Do you find yourself? Do you find yourself consistently giving your worst thoughts and words to those that you love the most, your children, your spouses, your co-workers? Do you find yourself spewing out upon them and you can't control your words there? Will you confess that, repent of that, and pray for the work of the Holy Spirit to give you self-control instead of frustration and anger? Maybe it's not anger. Paul talks about drunkenness. interesting in 2021 to even bring this up but I think it's important to do we so often can deceive ourselves and say oh it's just one at night to unwind I can give it up but for some for some it is drunkenness because that one's not one, but it's two, it's three, it's four, it's five. It's consistent. It's every night. You find yourself unable to relax, unable to unwind. You are dependent upon this in such a way that you cannot, if you were honest, push away from it. Here, Paul is saying it's not fitting of the Lord. It's not the way of flourishing. It's not life-giving. Don't be deceived. Confess it, repent of it, and pursue righteousness. Maybe it's not drunkenness. Maybe it's not envy. Maybe it's not anger. What about the tongue? 
Paul talks in this passage about divisions and dissensions. It oftentimes occurs through the, through the words that come out of our mouth. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, in verse 6 of chapter 3, he talks about this. The tongue's a fire. We know that. It's a, a world of unrighteousness. We know that. We feel that. Verse 8, no human being can tame the tongue. We know how difficult it is to control our tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Can, can, can anybody give a testimony to this? I know I can. I know you can. We fill this pool for our flesh to show, to show forth in, in what comes out of our mouth that shouldn't come out of our mouth. It might be gossip. It might be slander. It might be just wanting to feed the conversation to just build a little bit of doubt about the character of a person. You don't know for sure, but you just want to have a little bit of doubt. And you fill that pool. You want to you know just a little bit more. And you fill that pool. You want to carry on the conversation just a little bit more. And in those places that we should be silent, we speak too freely. All of us know the pool of the tongue. I think of Paul writing again in a, in a, in a, a similar passage in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. I love that phrase. It's out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. There, there's some things that we as Christians just shouldn't say. Everything's not fair game. I remember as a, as a young teenager who grew up playing sports and was highly influenced by, by people in my life that just showed passion through colorful language. And I thought to be really committed and to show passion, I had to use colorful language. I became a Christian at the age of 13, going on 14. I had about a year of my life. I'd go in the locker room. I would say what I always said. Megri, one of my good friends, in the middle of the locker room, freshman year, he comes to me. He says, David, aren't you a Christian? I said, yes. And he says, why do you use that language? Boom. Right between the eyes. I'm going to be honest with you. I had never thought about it. I doubt I'd read that passage. Sometimes in your life, you have little incremental moments of sanctification, little steps, take some steps back, little steps. Sometimes you have growth spurts in the Spirit. That was like a growth spurt for me in the Spirit, where God just said, hey, David, you should sound different than the world. If you're a follower of Jesus, there's some things that you just don't say in the locker room that everybody else says in the locker room, but you just don't say it. There's some things that with the guys you don't say because why? There is something different about you, and that should show up in our speech, what we say and what we don't say. Let there be thanksgiving, not foolish talk. I heard the Holy Spirit to me as a teenager say, grow up. Grow up in Christ. And maybe there's some of you, with love from me, your pastor, need to hear, grow up. Grow up in Christ. And we look at this passage here, and it is so practical. It is so concrete. Paul is saying, as followers of Jesus, our lives should be marked in such a way that they look different. Now, the strength for us to pursue righteousness and not be pulled by the world, it doesn't come first and foremost from us, but it is a fruit of the Spirit. So there's a temptation to hear the wrong message. There's a temptation to hear the whole series, nine sermons, 
this one sermon and leave here and say, I got to do better. I got to shape up. Do this, not do that. And you, and you miss. You miss what the word of the Lord tells us. The fruit of our life is wholly dependent upon us being connected to the source of growth. Jesus would say it this way in John 15, Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you hear something this morning, hear this. Jesus is the key to your growth. If you hear anything this morning, daily dependence upon Jesus on your knees, abiding deeply with him is the key to your growth. Asking him uh, each and every day, knowing that in your own strength, you will not look like the word of the Lord wants us to look, but every day we ask him to ripen the fruit of the Spirit in our life. So, so we start the day asking for him to produce love in us. We start the day asking him to produce joy in us. In the middle of the day, when we're, we're abounded with frustration, it's in that moment we cry out to him and say, God, I can't do this in my own strength. And you know what he says? Yep, you're exactly right. That's why it's my strength in you that leads you to bear much fruit. Just like, a, just, like, just like if you cut off a branch of an apple tree and you thought that branch would still bear the fruit of an apple, so it is when we disconnect from the source of our growth and think that we can bear fruit. No branch unto itself can bear fruit by itself. We must remain connected to the tree only by abiding with Christ can his love, his joy, his peace, his patience, his faithfulness and goodness and self-control, only then will they flow from us. Not because we're trying to be good people, but we're connected to the perfect Son of God and his Spirit is in us. So hear me, Jesus is the soul of your growth. Jesus is the water of your growth. Jesus is the sunlight of your growth. So what I want you to hear is turn to Jesus. None of this leaving here. I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to be no, 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 no. Hear me. Turn to Jesus. I say, turn to Jesus because He's the source of love. Turn to Jesus because He's the source of joy. Turn to Jesus because He's the source of peace. Turn to Him. He is the source of patience and kindness and goodness. Turn to Him. He is the source of faithfulness. He is the source of self-control. You leave here this morning. You leave here reminded, turn to Jesus. When I first was saved and walked into a church, it wasn't long before I stood with a congregation like you men and women here who deeply love the Lord. And I was introduced to a song that still plays in my head, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace.